Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I am joined by rugby coach Mike Friday. Mike is a professional player turned coach and is currently the head coach of USA Rugby Sevens. This episode was a really enjoyable step outside the typical sports science, physical prep and medical topics we normally host, and the conversation provided a great opportunity to talk about the fundamentals of sport, coaching, and the practical lessons that Mike has learned through a diverse career full of unique sporting cultures. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Airbands, the world's first fully wireless, automated and affordable BFR training cuffs. Equipped with intelligent calibration tools and controlled via the Airbands mobile app, the cuffs accurately inflate to your personalised pressure zone, safely restricting blood flow and increasing the limb's muscle response to weight stimulus. So with Airbands, there's no more cords, no more manual pumps, and no more guesswork. They are a safe and smarter option for BFR cuffs. For more information, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. But without further ado, let's get into today's conversation between myself, Andy McDonald, and Mike Friday. Mike, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to be on. Just to kick us off, and for the listeners maybe first discovering who you are now, would you be able to give us, uh, I guess initially, some background information on your your sporting career first, so you as the rugby player? Yeah, um, so yeah, rugby rugby's my game, wasn't. Uh, football was my first game, went to a football school, but uh, played on a Sunday, Sunday morning from the age of five. Um, and I was, you know, I chased the dream um, to try and play at the highest level, but I was part of that group that played and crossed over from the amateur to the professional era. So um, I gravitated, graduated through Wasp Colts um, from the age of 18, 19, where I got picked up and taken up there. Um, progressed through into the, into the first team in the early 90s. Uh, played the odd time there, but back then it was a very different game in terms of how you got opportunities. So I, I went away from Wasp for three or four years to Blackheath, which was at level two, level three, um, and played first team rugby, got experience there. And that was just at the time where rugby was starting to think about going professional. Um, and I then was part of uh, Black East team that was in that hybrid semi-professional era. And then I moved back across to Wasps in 97 um, as, a, as a professional player um, and played out there until 2002. Um, so I was fortunate, really. I had the, the best of both worlds in terms of experiencing rugby in the amateur ways and the amateur days and how you had to mix it and complement it with a career. And, and then I also had the benefit of uh, being a part of that early group that experienced professional rugby um, and being able to do a sport that you love and paid for it. Is there any kind of parts of the amateur days that you think professional players now could really benefit from or anything that's changed that you think is is maybe a negative thing that's missing. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the the big the big positive for pro rugby players now they're able to focus um, on being a rugby player, so they can maximise their potential as a rugby player. But the biggest thing for me that I think they're missing out on is that they're not getting the breadth of uh, social um, interaction and um, with with different people from different backgrounds of different ideals all they ever know are people that want to uh do well at rugby they want to you know excel in the game and i think getting those experiences with many different people that you would get if in, in the normal workplace um who have many different drivers and reasons for coming to work um is an experience that makes you a more rounded and better person or gives you a better opportunity of being that type of person um whereas at the moment you leave school you're going to be a professional rugby player that's all you do and there your circle can become quite narrow um and and focused which isn't necessarily a good thing socially um or or from a holistic perspective and I guess you know you can't say this for everybody but I guess you know building on what you're saying it's not surprising that some professional athletes especially nowadays find it hard when they get towards the end of their career to actually pick the next What's the next thing they're going to do? What's the career plan post-professional rugby? It's not surprising if they haven't had that diverse social interaction and experience that 
um, mapping out and just having a feel for what you could do next is it's quite a difficult process, I suppose. Well, it, it is. And, you know, part of that's trial and error in life, isn't it? And I think, you know, in the in the amateur days, you didn't necessarily know what you were going to do for a, for a living or a career, but you'd, you'd try things, you'd find your way and you'd have that experience. But now as a professional athlete, when you come out of school, everything's done for you. You know, you're, you're, you're told where you're going to be. You're told what you're going to need to do. You, you're, you're told what you've got to lift, what you need to improve on. And you're not given opportunity to, to deviate from the, from the guardrails um, of being a professional rugby player. And I think you need to experience different things, failure, um, in, order to, in order to be successful. And they, they're doing that in their rugby lives. Of course they are. But, you know having outside experiences and investing in yourself as a person for life after rugby is something that a lot of rugby players sacrifice whilst they're playing rugby. And I think, you know, I think there's a big piece of work here whereby investing in yourself holistically as a, as a rugby player while you're playing for life after rugby is something that's not just the responsibility of the player, it's the responsibility of the club and the profession to ensure that that happens because, until we can create a game whereby, in theory, you don't need to work after you play rugby, um, we're doing these players a disservice. And, and being candid with you, even if you did earn enough money not to, to have to play uh, or work after playing rugby, you still need a sense of fulfilment and purpose once you finish playing. And, and that will come in in something else, be it a, vo- a vocational job or be it a serious job or be it you know a passion um and i and i think a lot of players lose that perspective because they end up chasing the fact that i want to be in the first team i want to play for england i want to play for the british lions which are all fantastic aspirational things but they don't define you as a person they're just they're just moments within your rugby career yeah and i guess even beyond the kind of you know if you kind of class those as career aspirations i guess even the kind of weekly, you know, mid-season, you know, game-by-game, short-term goals that you kind of live by, um, they're very transient, aren't they? You know, the game comes, the game goes. And I guess, but they get, they're in a role and they're in a pattern where every week there's a new goal um, and a new step along a bigger journey. But then if you stop playing sport and you haven't got that next bit figured out, that's a hell of a lot of structure to lose very quickly overnight. A, a huge amount of structure and, you know, more more so with 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 young men but i would probably hazard a guess it's true to say for 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 women in professional sport as well is that everybody likes structure and we and we want boundaries we want freedom of course we do but we we do like boundaries and once they're taken away and you're just left to to float and wander and appear rudderless or feel rudderless then you know the the, the sense of feeling and self-worth can can be quite a roller coaster in 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 a negative way and i think that's that is a, a lot of experiences that that players who who haven't invested in life after rugby go through um and i think it's something that as a player that was part of that amateur professional mob um we didn't um because it was it was just second nature that's what you had to do um, but but as the game has evolved and developed and matured, we've got a very different generation now um, who have the pressures of that week to week, that game on game um, win mentality that they don't feel that they should or they can afford to to invest in themselves to ensure that that they've got things in place or, or ideas or directions they can go once the game is uh, is taken from them. Yeah. And we'll get, we'll get into your coaching shortly, but how have you found, have you found the kind of COVID break that's kind of, um, that, you know, most athletes worldwide have had, at least from what you've seen with rugby, have you seen COVID as a kind of standoff period, you know, in lockdown, especially, has that helped players to um, reflect or strategize their futures at all? Or is it, um, has it just been a distraction altogether? Oh, it's a tough Big question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> You know, from a personal perspective, it's it's been very up and down. You know, there's days where you are focused and you're uh, motivated and you understand what you're working towards. 
And then there's other days dependent on what's gone on where you're, what's the point? Um, and, and you ride that emotional roller coaster because you, you're not sure where the sport's going, where the game's going. Is it, is it that how fragile is it? You know, the whole sporting industry. Um, and you try not to think negatively and, and you just focus on the here and now and the things you can control. But at times your mind does wander because of the things you're not in control of. Um, and, and you can see the commercial realities down the track and what that, what those implications may be, you know, and it's all well and good going, well, it won't happen. It won't happen, but it could happen. And then where would, and then would we, where would we be? And then more importantly, then you think, well, where will I be? So I think that's the same for coaches as it is for players. Um, you know, the, 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 the financial issues are, are one thing but then there's the kind of the health of the game as a whole or the health of the sporting industry as a whole if we aren't able to get to normality and you talk about the six months has allowed athletes to recover you know to 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 refocus um but it's also created a lot of anxiety probably and and unsettled unsettlement because you crave normality ultimately at the end of the day because we all crave a routine because that gives us the structure and the purpose to to build day on day week on week so it, it, i think it's it, it's we're going it's something we've got to contend with and we've got to deal with but i think the continually the continuing uncertainty that we face with covid you know every week it's this lockdown or that lockdown or you know, it's just nothing but negativity rather than solution driven. How are we going to live with this virus? Because I think that's what we've got to think about and consider now, because from an economic standpoint and a, and a mental health standpoint, um, we can't stand still. We can't hide away. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Obviously, sevens over the last few, well, over the last few years, especially, has been getting bigger by in profile um, and and growing as a sport. What's the kind of current state of uh, of sevens looking like? And you know, what are you, what are you kind of seeing in your space at the moment? Yeah, I think it has been, but I think let's not get away from the fact that we're a global mobility type of event, and we're reliant on full full crowds and full stadiums. So we we couldn't have any more negatives considering the COVID situation <laughs> than you yeah. can think of. Um, so I'm worried about the World Series. I'm worried about the way that unions will look at their teams in the World Series because if you're a, a traditional tier one rugby nation, then 15s is the keys to the kingdom. Sevens is the snotty kid in the corner. If you're someone like the USA, it's the Olympic dream. If it's Fiji, it's it's a way of life. And Teams like USA and Fiji need the Tier 1 nations and the Tier 1 nations need teams like USA and Fiji. Um, so I think there's a big opportunity here for a, for a line, in the, line in the sand, a rethink, uh, in order for the Sevens to reposition itself much along the lines in which Formula 1 is or the, or, the, or the cycling model, whereby we become a very kind of private partnership commercialised model where the unions and the NGBs or the Olympic associations need to be at one because they control the players and the pathways, but we need that private uh, sponsorship and partnership to allow us to reposition the game um, and build. Because, you know, let's just talk about Formula One, where you've got Red Bull Racing, you've got Mercedes. Well, why can't you have Amazon USA? Why can't you have Red Bull England? You know, these are where these large corporate brands can utilise a, a, a global circus to advertise and promote and build their brand awareness and their products for a very, for want of a word, cost-effective way. And I think it requires World Rugby to be open to sharing what could be significant spoils. But it means you've got to relinquish a little bit of power and ownership. And that's the same for the unions as well. So I think there's an opportunity to to reposition the game and the series to create something quite unique. And Sevens is the only true global form of rugby that we have because the 15s world is kind of dominated by uh, a number of nations and, and, is, and is driven by your 
your front five athletes, whereas sevens, every country in the world has the opportunity and can compete if they invest properly and appropriately and efficiently. I mean, we've seen that USA, what's happened with the way that Kenya have, have, have entered and competed on the world. You've seen the likes on the women's side, the way that Russia have, even China are, are emerging and breaking through as well. So, you know, I think rugby has a real opportunity and sevens can be that gateway um, to create a really exciting uh, product. And I guess there'll be there'll be someone listening to this who hates the idea of um, uh, com- you know um, quite extensive commercialization of a national team. But I guess you can a team can be quite savvy, can't they? There's no reason why um, I don't know Kenya couldn't have Tusker as a kind of like heritage brand sponsor. So yes, it's like you said a commercial vehicle for the brands, and but you can still kind of keep that national identity, especially if you pick a national sponsor from your own country as well. A hundred percent. And, you know, that, yeah. who's to say Tusker probably want to hit the Asia market? Um, you know, Santander, Spain. I mean, it's, you know, the it's the opportunities are huge, but they but I think a lot of these brands want more than just their name on a shirt. I think I think the world is changing um, and I think we need to move with that. Otherwise, we 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 won't be around. I want to get into your um, your coaching career, mate. And I know the list is extensive, but could you go through your your coaching resume, if we call it that, or at least um, you know key you know key places that you've worked along the way through to now? Um, we we don't want to talk about Bromley under eight, then. Um, so, <laughs> well, that's it. Was <laughs> uh, well, to be fair, it, it it taught it taught me a lot. But um, I think you know I've had a, an interesting coaching career. Um, it's been a mixture of 15s and 7s. I'm probably more renowned for, for the 7 side than the 15s, but I've I've done stints in the 15s at, at championship level at, at London Scottish and, and London Welsh, worked in that semi-professional area um, of, of, of Blackheath in that kind of national one space. I've done work with some premiership clubs like Wasps on the skills side. Um, but 7s is where I've kind of built my craft and, and worked my craft and, and I was... I worked and, and led England um, back in 2002 to 2006. I then had a sabbatical away in in the city life um, and then came back and, and, and worked with Kenya uh, in 2012, 2013, which was a, a, an unbelievable experience. Um, and then latterly, I've, I've worked with, um, with the USA since 2014 to the present day um, on, on their sevens team. And what does your current role uh, look like? How does the, how does the kind of um, USA Sevens how is that set up? Is it any different to maybe the setup or or the roles that you've had previously, say um, in the UK? Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty. I mean, there's there's always nuances, but real reality is in terms of my job description or job roles, the way that they would describe it here is as a general manager. We'd probably call it more of a director of rugby, but because the reality is, I not only run the the, I'm the head coach of, of the USA Men's Sevens on the pitch and working and building the, the, the tactical strategies and uh, the squads um, from the playing side, but I'm also heavily involved in the strategic side, the pathways piece, as well as the funding and the uh, fundraising aspects of trying to drive the programme and the commercial parts. So it's, it's, it's a mixture of, of roles and responsibilities um some on the on the traditional rugby side and then others more on the commercial uh and financial side so it's it's an interesting role um because you need to to have a, a number of skill sets and you can't just be purely focused on one area and i guess your uh, the opportunities that you've had in terms of the, the generation of players you've come from uh, having you know that social diversity but i guess also your time in the city that's that you know no doubt that's um that's something that's kind of allowed you to be uh, effective in your current role that maybe um, a really clean, modern rugby background wouldn't make as easy, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, working in the city, again, I, I worked in a property uh, business, uh, international property business, and I, was, I, was, I wasn't front-facing uh, towards the end. At the start, I was d- doing was kind of trading in shopping centres, but I was then moved back into to the more of the 
managerial parts of building teams, running efficient and effective teams, building building uh, and integrating other businesses into the into the property uh, business. So again, that kind of people skills element and understanding how different people operate, how you communicate efficiently and effectively, that EQ whole part, that whole piece that you you need and understanding people's drivers. Whereas in sport, it's win or lose. It's very, very simple. In businesses, there's a lot of gray areas where it was a huge help for me coming into um, kind of somewhere like the USA where culturally they are so diverse that the, 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 the diversity of our playing squad is huge. And that's kind of epitomizes the, the country as a whole, as, as well as the off pitch dynamics that you've got to try and plot your way through as well. So it was a, a big learning curve operating in the, in the city in that kind of period from 2006 to 2012, which kind of coincided with that, that horrible recession as well, where we had to deal and, 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 you know, I think it was five rounds of redundancies. I, I had to, to work through. Um, so again, it teaches you how to, to, to treat people, how to understand people, the importance of flexibility of communication um awareness self-awareness all of those aspects that we we go on about um now has been so important in rugby so i was very practically taught and developed in in the realms of emotional intelligence um and it's an area that i enjoy um and i like to 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 i'm inquisitive at getting better at yeah and this is a, this is a bit of a mean question, so I apologise in advance. But um, you know, you know, based on the the benefits and the, the rewards you've reaped from your background, there there could be somebody, whether they're a coach or um, physio, sports scientist, whatever, they, who might have had um, the more modern, linear route from uh, you know a coaching course or a sports science degree, and then gone into professional sport that hasn't got that diversity in their background. And, and I've no doubt you've kind of mentored people along the way that are in that sort of situation is there any way or any places or resources that you, you kind of turn people to to um not catch up but to try and develop some of those skills and abilities that you've developed from um you know different environments when they haven't necessarily been able to change their own background to have that yeah it's i think there's a there's a there's a lot of resource out there both from literature uh but i i also think you know we, we we've done it here we, we run a you know, because we're always still we're still learning, we're still educating the players. There's a lot of um, businesses that offer that type of insight uh, and development. You know, for example, we've used the People's Academy, um, which is a, a firm that's based out of the UK that does a lot of work with the USOPC, which which does a, a you know whether it's about personality testing, about communication styles, understanding each other, but workshops real life workshops working with the people that you work with i think are the most valuable learning experiences but you need a facilitator you need somebody that can that can provide a framework but there's nothing more um there's nothing more or nothing clearer than doing it with the people you're working with day in day out because then you can see real change and you see real benefit and real value but what that requires is is vulnerability amongst your management team or your your team your squad and it requires collective buy-in and and you know as well as i do that we're all good at putting our defenses up and, and making out we don't need that and that's a load of rubbish and but but the reality is in the modern world it, it's it's fundamental if you want to be successful not just in sport but in in anything you know just in kind of everyday socialising is that those that have the strongest EQ and are prepared to explore and and get better at that will probably end up being the, the most successful people in that room. And and I, you can govern success in many different ways. It isn't necessarily about being the, the boss, but in terms of getting the outcomes that you're, you're trying to work to, to create. Um, being authentic and 
you know, flexibility of communication and, and understanding the people you're talking to is, is critical to be successful in anything you do. And I think you're, I think you're bang on about the vulnerability because I think sports generally a passionate place and it doesn't matter what role you're in. People are passionate. And I think with that can breed some conflict because people care so much about how they do things and what they do and their contributions. And I think I completely agree because when you've got somebody who you don't meet eye to eye with on a certain situation, I have found more often than not that if you can credit what they know that you don't or what their skill set is, where maybe yours is weaker and you go to them and you say, what do you think about this? And you, you, yeah, I guess put yourself underneath them in that situation to learn from them so they can bring you up on that topic. There's no doubt that that conversation tends to swing back the other way because you've, you've dropped the egos and you're, you're showing them the respect that, they probably want and at the same time you're learning and it'll probably come back the other way for both people's benefit i don't know if, does that sound like a situation yeah. you've seen or yeah i agree with you i think you know humility is is an easy word to say you know it's quite another thing to be consistent in application and i i'm a great believer i, I talk about moving around the table so when you have a conversation you've got to see it through your eyes and then you've got to go their side of the table and see it through their eyes and then you've got to come above and see what that conversation looks like if you're looking in. Because they're the three perspectives of it when you're when you're you're trying to make a uh you know, have have a reasoned debate, especially in a in a you know, in a, in a subject or a topic where there's disagreement, which in a sporting environment, that's a positive to have conflict. How you manage that conflict and how you you get harmony out the back of the conflict is the important piece. But if you don't have mixture of opinions a conflict of opinions you're probably not pushing the boundaries but there is what you can't have and you know this is again something that's that's really important to me is just because you're the boss it doesn't mean you're always right and likewise if you're not the boss it, it doesn't mean that the boss is always right but it takes both parties to be confident in both ways to to to, to pop up or or in the case of a boss to back down for want of a word. And I and I think there's a there's a dynamic there that is a responsibility of both sides. It's not just on what I would say the boss to make it make the other guy at ease. The other guy or girl has a responsibility to step up and be prepared to put their head above the parapet and be reasoned in 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 how they go about their their discussions, whether they're robust or not. Yeah. No, completely. And I, I want to take a, a tiny bit of a different turn. A frequent, uh, a frequent conversation point of this podcast, and probably many others, is you know we end up speaking about um, uh, data, sports science, technology, and we we habitually kind of gravitate towards these specific micro details or nuances. Technically, um, I want to talk to you about your time in Kenya, selfishly because Kenya is a place I spent time uh, going back a few years after the Olympics with Kenyan running. But obviously, you worked with Kevin um, with Kenyan sevens. Um, I want to get back to the kind of fundamentals of sport, which is, is definitely what I saw, and I'm sure it's what you saw. But when you moved to Kevin, Kenyan Sevens, what was the kind of lay of the land? And would you be able to kind of share your journey there? Because I think, it, you know, it's a special place sport-wise, but I think, you know, your story there would be very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was when I agreed to do it, you know, probably my ego got the best of me. I didn't realise what I was getting into. But let's just say when I turned up um, at Kasarani, which is the uh, the high performance center, um, which you know looks looks great, but the the swimming pool looked like it'd never been swimming. Um, the actual, as you can imagine, the running track will look good. <laughs> that was well used, the running track, but the rest of it, and we were on the outside pitches. I literally, it was a dust bowl with the grass up to my calves. Now you might say that's not that long because I'm not that tall, but it was trust me, it was long. Um, and literally, I got given, you know, high performance. I got given all the equipment, and literally, I was given a bag of old balls and some cones. And the Kenyan boys came running out in waves and strays, dribs and drabs, on time in their mind. Ten minutes late, but on time in their mind. And I did sit there, and I was like, "Oh my god, what have I, what have I, what have I walked into?" Because I've come from historically a tier one nation like England and, and other places where you've got countless amount of resources at your fingertips. You know, you've got GPS, you've got, you know, you've got all sorts, 
back then you know you get all the kit that you needed to, to get the job done and I had to think about the game in the fundamentals of what's most important well we had to physically we had to condition them to get them where they needed to be so you know we signed it it, it was about trusting your eyes and understanding how hard we could push them both from a conditioning perspective but also how much we could build their strength and then what could we do to make a big difference to them on their uh on their nutrition which they had a lot of unprocessed natural foods which meant that their diets were really good but were they getting enough of it and did they just need some additional supplementation just to maximize the work they were doing in the gym now they didn't have all flash gym equipment they just moved weight right whatever it was there was push pull and they got it done and they had to learn how to they had to mentally learn how to hurt as well as physically be able to to run for a certain period of time at a high speed and that was, oh, that, Sorry. That, yeah. that was the that was the formula upon which we we built what we weren't able to do from a scientific perspective was probably get the loading 100% right but so we probably didn't get it right all the time if that makes sense because we had to, we, we rely on our eyes that's all we used to rely on was on our eyes and how they were looking and how they were moving but but there were times where we probably pushed them too hard but we would have got that back tenfold mentally um come come game time so it it, it very much was a was a suck it and see but i i'm a great believer that it's that 80% of it is that and your eyes are things you need to trust and then you need to re- you need to refer to the data to get confirmation or maybe actually we just have got this one wrong or if my eyes aren't seeing what the data is then you had that ch- that challenging conversation how what i'm curious to know is um and i guess this really builds on the kind of fundamental part of it is when you walk into say a team like england sevens versus a team like kenyan sevens how much does your thought process or your your kind of mental framework change for how you you walk into that team on week one and start to evaluate the needs of that team? How different is it when you're in, say, Kenya versus a team like England where you said where you've got all the bells and whistles? Um, in terms of what I, in terms of when I walk in there, I, I probably still have a, whether it's England or whether Kenya, I have a very clear framework or clear boundaries of, of what I expect and what I want and what we're going to do. And most of them are built around human values. And from then it's about trying to build a rugby player, be it from a technical or tactical or a physical or a mental part. But until we've got the boundaries, right. And, and you know, we're talking broadly about culture, but what we're talking about is a, a simple set of human values about how we're going to go about our business that's the that's the starting place for me and that was the same whether it was england kenya or usa how that evolves is very individual and personal to that group of people because there's lots of things that are bespoke to kenya you know you talk about heritage and that's they'll they'll be very different to usa which is very different to the u to to england so you've got to let them breathe and evolve and let the the players create their own identity around that framework of values that you put in place which are your non-negotiables and that's that that part was um was pretty consistent in all three of those uh situations but they all evolved differently in terms of you know what i wanted from them from a physical standpoint how we are able to monitor and get there in England and USA will be very different to Kenya. Um, yes, you, we would have some markers that may be uniformed across the, the three, but dependent on once you actually start to understand each of the guys, and you've got to get to know them and they've got to get to know you and who the chances are, who the hard workers are, you know, you can start to then tailor and bespoke to try and get the best out of each and every one of them. And I think that's one of the biggest responsibilities of a coach, be it a, the rugby coach, be it the, the the athletic trainer or the physio or be it the, the conditioner. 
you've got to mould yourself around the player to get the best out of them, not the other way around. Can't mould the players around you. It's you that has to change and be malleable without compromising the values and the boundaries that you've put in place and your uh, you being authentic. Yeah, and I think it's it's easy to say people first or values first. I think we get we can say it sometimes a little bit um, as jargon, but I think you know having spent time out there and hearing you talk about it, I think you know, Kenya is such a pure example where it's it's all just it's such a brilliant example of a place where that really does ring true. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting we said that because again, when I was in Kenya, the, the the biggest thing that 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 you have to understand about the way that Africa works or the way that Kenya works is that it's very hierarchical. So everybody's working hard until you get to a certain level and then you're expected to get your slice of the cake. And it, and that's, that's an accepted thing. And, and the problem is like when, when you, if you go in there and you fight for everything for them, but not for your benefit, they question that to start with because they think there's a catch. But once they realise and once they understand that it's genuine and it's authentic for them, then they run through brick walls for you. And it, it, it was a really interesting dynamic to, to happen because it's, it, it, was, it was clear as day when it happens um, because they've been let down so many times because of how their hierarchy seems to work. And it's that, that old thing, you know, I wouldn't be like that when I get there. I won't be like that when I get to that level. You can always hear it in the corporate world here in the UK, you know, or in the USA. I won't be like that. I, I know where I came from. And then when they get there, they, they kind of forget. And I think that's that's an important part of, of leadership is that you have to stay in touch and be, you know, in you, you have to be true to your values and see it through. Even, you know, like you said, it, you, you can't forget you have to be consistent. And whether this is from your time in Kenya or, or anywhere else, you know, over your coaching career across continents, cultures and, 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 you know, different environments on reflection, what kind of key experiences or lessons have, have really stuck with you or had the most impact on you as a coach, you know, things that maybe, you know, just spring to mind. Um, well, there's, there's sometimes it's the things that, you know, I hope I'm not like that. You know, it's the negative experiences, right? Where, you know, things have happened that you think, I hope I wouldn't behave like that. Or, you know, I've seen, I've seen some examples of, again in, in Kenya, for example, where people have not been, have, have been kind of true to their word until they got to the point where actually it was going to be there to their detriment, not, actually that significantly to their detriment to, to stand strong. So they sold the group out. And I think those types of experiences where you see them, you know, for me is a, is a, is a, is a very short term outlook rather than you have to be true to yourself and the values that you stand by. And you have to be very sure what they are and, and stick to it. Um, and you know, and, and for me, there's no more, more complicated that I'm driven by injustice that that's, I know that, and that sometimes can be my, my undoing in the fact that I need to then stand back and get perspective of without compromising my values. Is this a time to, to stand strong or, or actually am I doing this for the, for the wrong reasons? And when you're a younger man, you're far more aggressive and impetuous because you see every everything as an injustice rather than looking at uh, uh in, a, in a more rounded and holistic way um which is 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 something that you get you only get better at when you get it wrong <laughs> sadly yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, what, what i don't want to waste the opportunity to talk to you about whilst you're on here especially as a as a playing coach is we've had multiple guests on who have referenced communicating uh, things like key injury information or sports science variables to and, and to, to then go and communicate those variables uh, to influence maybe the technical or tactical coach decisions. And within those talking points, we've been given kind of tips or accounts on how those people have approached it. But but really importantly, on the receiving end of it, I'd love to know how do you like that information given to you, or what things do you care about, and and ultimately, I guess. Yeah, it's a big question, but ultimately, how do you, how would you encourage backroom staff to approach this um, 
from your perspective? Um, mm, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm a big believer of bad news early. That that would be my underlying message to to anybody is that personally what what i struggle to what i struggle with is is not being told the situation early and i also really 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 want solution driven information and when i say solution driven i for, for for me as a from a coaching perspective right ultimately we're about getting get them back on the pitch. And I, and I know that's the same for all of the backroom staff, but I'm not interested in whether you over deliver or under deliver. Don't just tell me the realistic timescales. Don't give me conservative ones because all that happens is if I get conservative ones, I soon work that out and I always take three weeks off. So I think timely, proactive, realistic information is 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 critical both on a daily basis and when we're we're monitoring and 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 we're we're building toward you know through a season and I, and I know that's a very simplistic thing to to say but it's amazing how we get caught up in the day job and we don't deliver on that and if we have you know as a coach if you have bits of information and you know the the conditioner and the the uh, athletic trainer are at one but they're not communicating or it's not being communicated in a timely and a proactive, realistic uh, timescale with the coaching, then it can cause friction. So I, I would, I would, I would say having an effective uh, process in place whereby it, it can be a little bureaucratic, but is fundamental to allow everybody to be on the same page for communication is critical. And I've been in some environments where it's really good and I've been in some environments where it's not so good for one reason or another and it's ended up distracting from the primary cause, which is allowing the squad to operate to its fullest potential and ensure that as many of the players have their best opportunity of being considered for selection. Have you ever had kind of staff pull you aside, you know, early on in your um professional relationship with them to kind of ask you your preferences is that been something that people have done in the past i would say not no and i and and no i, I can't think of anyone where, I, where that's happened nobody's been and i think that maybe maybe i've been unlucky or maybe i've been unapproachable could be one of those two things um but you know i, I would again i would urge back staff to be proactive to to seek out because every system will need tweaking dependent on the personalities in it but Rather than wait for the coach to come up with an idea, reality is that should be driven anyway by, I would say, by, by the, the medical and the, and the performance staff. And, you know, if they've got something that works, then, you know, nine times out of ten, it'll be like, yeah, that's great. That's 80%. I like all that. Can we just consider this, 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 and this? And, you know, that's where the compromise whereby the athletic trainer or the condition might go, we don't really need that. But if that's what he wants or she wants, then if you're getting that system in place and there's a little bit of give and take, then I think you're in a, you're in a good place. Um, And yeah, I would, I would encourage always encourage the, the 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 back staff to be proactive in coming forward with a with a system um but make sure you're realistic and authentic in that system and don't don't be conservative and i that would be my bugbear is that nearly everywhere i go there the the physios and the doctors are conservative and i know i know coaches are aggressive <laughs> um but you know does one breed the other do you know what i mean rather than rather than actually let's just get to a a realistic and obviously it takes it takes time to to build trust and to understand maybe each other's you know ways of working and uh maybe it takes a few mistakes occasionally as well but i think a lot of physios will have especially would have been in a situation where things change you know they've given the coach uh, that conversation where they tell them the dreaded news about 
the injury prognosis and when that player is going to be back on the field or expectations of that at least. But sometimes the plan does change, you know, and, you know, probably no physio wants to necessarily be in that conversation or it's not the easiest conversation to, to breach. Is there any, have you, have you ever kind of come across anyone or is there any kind of examples that jump to mind where people have done a really good job of handling that situation and giving you the information and managing it, you know, smoothly and, and uh, coherently? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've, I've got some, uh, some good experiences with, with some physios that have done that because I agree with you. I think the thing, again, by the very nature of physios and conditioners, that they're nurturers. So they're very they're, they're sensitive is the wrong word, right? But they're but they're very much they're nurturers because they they're, they're there to make things better. Um, and if it's not make, if we're not making it better, then I've got to tell someone I'm making it better. And I think they they dread that conversation, and it's more in their head than than anything else. And I like I've said to you, most coaches who are analytical and um, are driven, <laughs> but you know, are still 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 you know will be good people, but. They they will probably in, like and respect just the information early. And I had a couple of, of, of physios when I was in England. He would he would just give you the information and say, "This is the crack. This is what we're trying to do, but we've had a setback." So that's why I go on about this solution driven is the fact that even if you are delivering more bad news. Like we were, we were tracking towards this, but he's had a setback because of this and this, and that probably means that. If coaches understand that with process, you know they get it. They might not like it, but they get it. And as long as it's not a continuing theme, like that's happening with six athletes in a row, where they're like, "Well, have we got the process right?" Then I, I would just urge um, those types of physios and conditioners don't go into your head about what you think they're going to say because they're they're probably not going to say what you think they're going to say and even if they do again because i've done this even if they if you do shout and you holler it's only through disappointment <laughs> and that you're upset it's not attached to the person that's delivered the news but i think sometimes the person who's delivered the news thinks that it's at them and yeah, I, I, I think you've got to make. I think you've got to go in uh, and make the point quickly to then get to the explanation, rather than skirt around the topic 100%. and stress the conversation 100%. out. But I, yeah. I probably I don't know. I mean, I don't know because I'm I'm not a conditioner or I'm not a uh, a physio. But I would hazard a guess if if a lot of them that a lot of those guys and girls that struggle with that is they're probably oh, I might do I do that. And I think that's a self-reflection point is that you, you know, you you know who you work with and, and that's, that's that awareness of others and that self-awareness and how you might need to be when you have to deliver that information. And like us all, sometimes you have to put on, you, you have to put a show on. So, so maybe you've got to put a show on for those two minutes to get that message across to the, to the boss. And that, you know, you're not, you're not selling yourself out. You're putting a show on but you're not, you're not compromising your values, but you're just packaging it up in a way that he or she can accept it. Which ultimately is, is effective communication, really, exactly. when you get down to it. Yeah. And then, and then you work on the solution because I think that's the, that's the point. You get to that, then it's like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Okay, sweet. As a kind of coach now, where do you, you know, you've got this, you've got a very strong communication and, and diverse kind of um, social background, especially when you look at um, having worked in different countries and environments. Where do you turn to now or, you know, where do you kind of focus your coach or your personal professional development now moving forwards? Um, I, I do, I enjoy a lot of um, psychology stuff, um, but practical stuff. So I'll, I'll work with, um, interesting, I'm, I'm so fortunate I've got, uh, there's a guy here currently working with us at the USOPC um, called Pete Nashchak, who's a ex Navy SEAL, so high performing. Um, but he's been there, seen there, done it. But he's not just operated in in that world. He's obviously now himself transferred across to the to the corporate world as well as working in the sporting world. So again, working and sharing and, and being mentored with his experiences, and again being challenged by him and you know, have you thought about this? Have you looked at that? 
uh, that's that practical learning and development that that's really beneficial for me as well as um you know one of the other coaches that we utilize is more on the mental skills side and the and the communication side again just sharing experiences and and research and learnings that that are coming through from where she's at and i do like i do like to have those kind of refresher workshops because it's it's a habit you know you if you don't keep topping it up you you can slip back into some old habits so you know we've done some work before like we did a big piece with the players on on the people's with a, with with a, with a group here called the people's academy and then we've had supplementary follow ups as well because it's you know you've got to keep you've got to keep putting a little bit in the bank um on the, on the practical workshop side you can't just say well, I've done that tick the box I've got the degree we move on um you know so that that's where I go. I, I like practical experiences. I, I'm not I'm not great on reading. I I, I will read. I can read, <laughs> just. Um, but you know, I, I I much prefer dialogue, communication, debating, and discussing um, to consider things, um, and and then and then and then trying things out. And obviously, you know, you've been on the podcast today sharing your. Um sharing your work and sharing your views uh, and insights. Is there a good place for people to follow you? Are you, are you someone that's active on social media? Yeah, I do bits and pieces on, um, on Twitter. Um, that's probably where I'm probably a little bit more forthright with my views. Um, I'm a, probably a bit more fun and jovial with, with the squad and, and players on Instagram. Um, but I, but I am on LinkedIn really. If I, if, if I see some interesting research stuff or, bits and pieces around teams and, and cultures and, and leadership uh, and effective communication, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll share that or repost that um, on LinkedIn. And we'll put, um, we'll put links to your social handles on the show notes and on the episode description as well. So people can, cool. people can follow you and find you, but Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. And you know, we're both stateside. So if we're in the same town at any point, we, I've got to get you a beer for today. So for sure, yeah. mate, for sure. I don't know where, but, um, I don't know whether we'll be able to travel, but. <laughs> but whenever that is, I owe you a beer and yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrew. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Big thanks to Mike for coming on today's show and sharing not only some pragmatic coaching wisdom that we can all probably pull something from, but also for sharing his story on such an interesting career as it continues. Thank you for listening to today's episode and a special thank you to return listeners of the show. If you haven't done so already, then please subscribe to encourage our efforts and support the show. Your support in this way is the single metric that allows us to attract sponsors and essentially improve the quality of what we deliver to you. So if you're enjoying the podcast, then please and very simply hit subscribe to help us out, something we truly do appreciate. Today's episode will have show notes that you can find on our website, informperformance.com, and you can find us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. Thanks for tuning into this episode with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.